Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week we are tackling the kidnapped prime minister. First published in What Else? The Sketch in April uh, of 1923. So pretty early in the long run of Christie's short stories, and um, some of that we can tell, to be completely honest, up front about this short story, I think. You're not a huge fan of this short story, Catherine? Not, not a huge fan, you? I was not. I was neither a fan of the short story nor the adaptation this time, for both the same and slightly different reasons, so we'll get into it. Yeah, so um, let's start with the victim, and... It is the Prime Minister of uh, Britain, (laughs) David McAdam, and he's originally shot at on a car ride from Windsor back to London. He is en route to... It's a little bit unclear in the short story. It says Versailles, but the assumption is it's actually the Paris Peace Conference, which was not actually held at Versailles, so... It's a little confusing what's going on here because there's like a lot of real world tension in this short story, but yet yes, there are some yes. inaccuracies which make it a little bit unclear what's happening. It's clearly stated at the beginning of the story that this is a story being told by Captain Hastings after World War One has after the Great War has ended that took place during the Great War, right? What? So, Well, or possibly, and, and, or possibly at the end of it. It's unclear. I mean, it could be, he literally could have been, I guess, going to the treaty signing. It's, it's unclear if the war is still on, I think. That's what I thought it was. I thought he was going to the Treaty of Versailles. So we're, we're in... You know, 1919. It is a little unclear. Because, but it, because it's unclear why anybody, why a German sympathizer, I guess, would want to interrupt the signing when the peace process had already been going on for a year at that point. This is the problem with the short story, which the adaptation... Oh, the adaptation's almost worse. And that's the thing. The adaptation goes through some gymnastics to try to uh, morph and clarify the politics that are rather muddy in the short story, but I actually think it does a terrible and somewhat alarming job, and we'll get to that <laughs> in a little bit. For and, sure. And that also has to do with, I think, the year that the adaptation itself was made. I mean, there's so there's all sorts of confusion here going on between the year the story is set, which is like 1918, the year the story was written, which is 1923, the year the adaptation is set, which is 1936, and the year the adaptation was made, which is 1990. Right. And so it's it's a really weird case, which I don't actually think happens that frequently in Christie stories, where trying to actually place it in geopolitical events actually muddies the waters of what the story is. Yeah, it does, because she was confusing about those real world events. We're supposed to be able to place this within the real world, but we just kind of can't. Right. Right. <laughs> Based and so, on what we're given. Right. So what we do know is that the obvious suspects yes. are, I guess, in a broad category, the Germans. <laughs> like, of course, we're, since we're at yeah, we're at the end of war with Germany, so if someone has shot at and then kidnapped the Prime Minister, there is a good chance that the Germans are behind it. Their motivation is pretty obvious. And because the Prime Minister seems to have disappeared in France, that also means that there are just any number of Germans who could be in France on the ground and For sure. it just it, it sort of adds an extra complication there. But we do have two specific individuals 
usual suspects, and only two. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, one of them is Captain Daniels, who is the prime minister's very smart and linguistically inclined private secretary. He, I believe he speaks seven languages, which Poirot says right off the bat is suspicious since British people <laughs> are not very good at languages. So perhaps he's a secret German, I suppose, is, is what he's getting at there. Captain Daniels is in the car with Prime Minister McAdam when the Prime Minister is shot at, and he's also with him when he seems to be kidnapped in France. However, in France, Daniels was found gagged and chloroformed in the French countryside in a second abandoned car. So he seems to have been a victim of that kidnapping in France. Right, and so then the only other possible suspect is... The charmingly named O'Murphy. Do you think is, he's Irish? Oh, I wonder. Murph. <laughs> Do you think they call him Murph? I mean, um, it wasn't enough to just call him Murphy. He has to be O'Murphy. O'Murphy, yep. Um, <laughs> Maybe he, he should be O'McMurphy. He's the prime minister's chauffeur. Um, but he's also a CID man, so he's respected, especially amongst the people investigating it. What's CID, by the way? Criminal Investigation Department. So he would appear to be above suspicion by those investigating, except for the fact that the car that had been carrying the prime minister to the train station to bring him to Dover, that car was abandoned outside of a location of known German sympathizers in London. And conveniently, O'Murphy has disappeared. And, and this is going to be important, it's going to be more important when we talk about the adaptation. It's yeah. made it very pointedly clear, if you didn't get it from O'Murphy, that O'Murphy is also from County Clare. And so while it is not set, we'll get to this in a minute, that's all that's said, but it's repeated more than once in the short story that O'Murphy is from County Clare. So let's just be real, real clear. He is Irish. He is Irish and he's not from one of the counties that will become Northern Ireland. Yeah. So he is an Irishman who probably sympathizes with the Irish as opposed to the British, the English or I guess yeah. we could say the British. The other thing, by the way, we just spent a while making fun of Agatha Christie for her name of O'Murphy, but I did think it was amusing that she made up this prime minister. There was no actual prime minister, McAdam. But McAdam is a, just a type of road. It's like a type of road material that was invented by this Scotsman, and it's just it's a name that signifies someone very solid and grounded and earthy and thoroughly British, and I thought that was a really funny, appropriate name and kind Although- of... They would probably say at this point that they were thoroughly Scottish and that they actually have nothing to do with the English because now we have, in fact, similar situation going on. With Scotland and England, sure. Yeah, there was not there was not necessarily that distinction that we made then. This is basically going to be a UK politics kind of episode, unfortunately. Yeah, and we'll see and we'll <laughs> see how good we can do. And g- that's the thing. Given and, that we're two Americans. Yeah, we are aware that we're two Americans talking about political situations spanning approximately a hundred years and that we have no <laughs> first-hand knowledge of or even much no. second-hand knowledge since this was never the focus of our history classes, but we will muddle through it. You can feel free to send comments yes. to our various social media and email addresses about what we have done <laughs> poorly in our retelling of UK politics. So um, <laughs> I guess let's just like really quickly run through The world as it appears to be, right? Sure. We've covered a lot of it, but basically it's the eve of this huge, important announcement. So whether or not you think that the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, or if you think it's actually the Paris Peace Conference itself, 
Regardless, the prime minister is supposed to be in France, and he has gone in advance to Windsor to speak with the king. And so on his return route to London, the car has turned off a side road. So they're not on the normal route, and so they're not being followed by normal Scotland Yard security detail. And that's when he gets shot at. Uh Uh-huh. And he's grazed, thankfully. He's not mortally wounded. He's bandaged. His face is bandaged at a local clinic and at the rail station in London to transport him to Dover. His private secretary... Captain Daniels. Captain Daniels very kind of tactfully deals with police inquiries and just to ensure that everything is just smoothed out and that they're not going to publicize this or make a huge deal about it, although it gets into the paper anyway, because all they want to do is make sure that the prime minister can get to Dover and make his channel crossing to Boulogne. And while they're en route then in France to Versailles, McAdam is kidnapped. It's basically like a false car um, rigged up to look like the one that would have really picked him up. Uh, he's right, the, kid- car that, the, the car that was waiting for him in Bologna is, is a false car. Correct. And so he is kidnapped, and then as we find out later, Captain Daniels is uh, bound and gagged and chloroformed and dumped in the French countryside. And then, of course, again, back in London, the original car is dumped outside of a super German location, and uh, O'Murphy's also gone. Poor Captain Daniels. It's kind of like what happened to Liam Neeson's daughter in Taken, except, you know, he didn't... (laughs) He's not sold into the sex trade? (laughs) Spoiler, but he does not end up on the barge of a Saudi Arabian sheikh (laughs) as a sex slave. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Speaking of xenophobia, Lord Astaire, who is the leader of the House of Commons, along with a Mr. Bernard Dodge, who's a member of the War Cabinet, have only 24 and one quarter hours to find the Prime Mm -hmm. Minister. So they go to, of course, our dear friend, Mr. Poirot, for assistance. And it is interesting that it's noted in the story, Mr. Poirot, with uncharacteristic modesty, says, how did you even know to come to me because I'm not very well known in your country? Which is in keeping with the fact that we are probably months after the mysterious affair at Styles in the Poirot timeline while World War One is still going on. So that does make sense. And they say that it was on the advice of a royal personage. Well, they don't say royal personage yeah, exactly. But they, they, they imply. They impl- it's implied that it's King Albert. Yeah, they imply it's King Albert of Belgium. That seems to be what they're saying. It's this odd moment that's supposed to be significant, but it's sort of like, whatever. They came to Poirot. Who cares? Let's move on. Well, but Poirot's very touched by it because he's like, oh, wow. If the king sent you, then <laughs> I must I, do yeah. your bidding. We're still, I think, in the short story in the world as it appears to be for quite a long time, actually, until the final solve at the end. Because what happens is that Poirot and Hastings and the short (laughs) ferret-faced Inspector Jack and (laughs) Detective Barnes and Major Norman, who are... Random characters who are just thrown on in there. Random characters just thrown on in here. They all go to France. Poirot, of course, is in intense fear of mal de mer. He has these little head-turning exercises that he does, which Hastings recounts with some slightly sadistic humor, but it works. They get through the channel crossing, they land, 
And Poirot decides at this point that instead of looking at a map or heading out on the route that the prime minister's false car took, he is instead is going to sit for five hours in a private hotel room near the port. And of course, everyone else is horrified. beside themselves, even horrified. Hastings. Even Hastings, who once again doubts Poirot and his genius as he does in every single story. Oh, Hastings. They all know that the clock is ticking here. And five hours later, Poirot decides that everyone's got to head on back to London. Yes. So they basically, there are pages devoted to this channel crossing and to landing in (laughs) France and to this odd brief stay at this hotel when all of that is really all for Poirot to be like, actually, you know what? Poirot has finished his thinking. The little gray cells have had time to stew in this. And let's just get right back on that boat and turn around. Yeah, this is only about a 22-page long story, but it felt really long. Yeah, because a lot of it is like this. <laughs> a lot of it is just is just recounting what happened without any clues or intrigue, to be perfectly honest. So once in London, Poirot receives a list of clinics that are en route from Windsor to London. The whole crew then drives out to visit those clinics. And Poirot, he then insists that they go to this random house in Hampstead. And in the house, they take into custody two men and a woman. Hastings apparently does not really get a very good look at them because he doesn't say much more than that at that point. And then they speed their way to an airfield, during which time Poirot reveals that one of the men in the back of the car is actually O'Murphy, who seems shell-shocked. And And I'll also say Hastings makes a note about O'Murphy being like, well, I guess he's just so shocked at getting caught that they don't even have to handcuff him. Right, right. He still clearly has no (laughs) idea what's going on. And he also can't believe that Poirot is going to fly to France to find the prime minister finally after all this apparently wasted time and try to get him to Versailles in time. But, oh, surprise... One, the, the other man taken into custody at that random house is, in fact, the prime minister. And he, of course, is the one that is promptly put on that airplane and sent over the sea to France, where he makes it in time to the Treaty of Versailles slash Paris Peace Conference slash maybe something else. Slash to apparently give a very, very well-regarded speech, which we're told at the very end. Urging the world to not given to peace with the Germans during slash post World War One, which is maybe a contributing cause yeah. to World War Two. A lot of to people are. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. And this is where the timelines are so weird and important for the setting of the story and the writing of the story. In 1923, it was not obvious that urging for more punitive measures against the Germans was a bad thing. It is obvious now, and it probably... <laughs> that it might have been a really, really bad idea. Yeah, I mean, we know now with the benefit of hindsight that Hitler was able to foment a lot of rage among the Germans by the fact that they had a horrible economic situation, which has been partially due to a huge, all the their fines. And yeah, so it's, it's yeah. just kind of, I mean, obviously there's a lot more there that's, that's very simplistic, but Prime Minister McAdam is not necessarily on the right side of history here. And in 1923, she clearly thought that he was, and it just makes that, it that a little hard la- to read. That he should be lauded, right? It, yeah. it is, appears that we should think that this was heroic and that McAdam should be lauded for his, his hard stance and getting the standing ovations um, at whatever conference or signing he's actually going to. 
And maybe we should go through the clues to get to the world as it actually is. Sure, yeah. I mean, there aren't very many, right? Um, I guess number one is never trust an Englishman who is a good linguist, apparently. (laughs) Poirot says it up front. He asks a bunch of questions. He's really suspicious that an Englishman would possibly know that many languages. And he's immediately, immediately concerned that Daniels does. So that prejudice against a good linguist is borne out. So clue number two, (laughs) the shooting of the prime minister seems botched and also like it may not have been intended if they were then going to kidnap him. In other words, the plan was clearly to sow discord and confusion by having the prime minister go missing. That's actually what happened. So why even bother taking a shot at the prime minister beforehand? That sort of confusion is something that... It's suspicious. Yeah, we're meant to think hard about that and not gloss over it as everyone else seems to have done other than of course Mr. Poirot and the deduction there that Poirot makes is that he wasn't actually shot at. The whole purpose of this supposed shooting was to cover the prime minister's face and this is yet another you know it happens all the time it happened just in our last episode with the witness for the prosecution I mean, right you know when for sure when, it uh, happens all of the time it happens all the time like if someone is appearing in bad lighting or with their face covered by scarves or bandages yeah, or a hat or if anything a, right if they're in a dark alley Wearing a hat with a bandage over their face, that's not the person who it's supposed to be. Exactly. There's something tricky going on in terms of identity. So the whole point of the shooting... Or if somebody's face is bashed in. Right. Or if someone's face is bashed in, like on the Mystery of the Blue Train. So the whole point of the supposed shooting is to be able to have the person pretending to be the prime minister cover his face when they're getting onto the boat to cross over to France, because that would then make everyone believe that the prime minister had actually been kidnapped in France rather than in England, so that no one would would be looking for him in England. But of course, Monsieur Poirot was too smart for them. Right. And so the only other clue is the County Clare reference and also the O'Murphy last name. And it's a little bit of a tough one, I think, if you aren't really considering the timeline or if you're a casual reader. But really, the frame, because what we're talking about here is there's a frame job going on on the chauffeur. Spoiler alert, the chauffeur didn't do it. But he is set up to do it, and he's set up to take the fall because he's O'Murphy from County Clare. And whether or not it's set in 1918 or 1919, it doesn't really matter because it's set against the rise of Sinn Féin in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And that happened in 1918, and then basically in 1919, 1920 is when the, depending on how you want to look at it, the Irish War of Independence or the Black and Tan War really started. And by the time Christie mm-hmm. wrote the story, Ireland basically won their war and in a brutal manner. And Ireland becomes the Republic of Ireland and then Northern Ireland. And so, obviously, there's a huge amount of tension here. And the fact that the county is specifically named, we mentioned it earlier, but the fact that it is specifically in what would become the Republic of Ireland is important. And it's important to make it look... It's it's important to make him look suspicious because what's going on here is that he would have to have enough... He would have to have as much reason as the Germans to um, have anger directed at an English prime minister or Scottish, depending on right. you it, want to look at his last name. It's a really convoluted clue, though, because the Irishman didn't do it. 
right? I mean, in the in the short story, the Irishman Correct. didn't do it. The Irish chauffeur is, is innocent. So the idea is that they He's being are framed. using the yeah they're using the prejudice that any of these English people would have against this Irish chauffeur to easily frame him as, oh, well, that chauffeur must have had something to do with it. Right. In the short story, it's probably worth just really quickly sketching out how exactly it went down. Basically, Prime Minister is in the car with his secretary, Daniels, and his chauffeur, O'Murphy. They go into that side road so no one can see them. And at that point, the Prime Minister is chloroformed and gagged, and the chauffeur is chloroformed and gagged, and then they get taken to that random house in Hampstead. The random house in Hampstead wasn't actually random. It was actually the hideout of a German agent named Frau Berta Ebenthal, who had been apparently long sought after by Scotland Yard and who Daniels had been passing off as his aunt, Mrs. Everard. So that is actually what the end of the story is, that the prime minister and his chauffeur were being trapped by a German agent in, uh, you know, the British countryside. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. So then there's a fake prime minister and there's a fake chauffeur that make it to the boat stop in London, the, to the dock. Dover. Yeah, to, the, to Dover, essentially. And then the fake chauffeur drives back to London where he goes to that seedy place and that's the last place where he's seen. It's very easy for these investigators at Scotland Yard to believe that that chauffeur, oh, he was a bad one. He was actually colluding with the Germans because he's Irish. So even though the real O'Murphy is innocent, his name and the fact that he's from County Clare is important because it means that he was easily framed. And that's probably the most interesting thing we can say about the whole story. And it's totally excised from the adaptation because in the adaptation, O'Murphy is guilty. This adaptation is episode eight of series two, the second to last of that season, and it aired in February of 1990. So in February of 1990, the troubles that had been raging for the entire 20th century were still very much raging. And right. I think IRA violence in London was yeah, a real thing. I'm, and we're not taking a stance either way here. I mean, this honestly, this stuff is all so recent. It's it's understandably difficult for and people on both sides to consider. So, like, this is supposed to be a fun podcast discussion, so we don't have to get too into it. But I think there is a, a pretty convincing argument to be made that there's some strong anti-Irish sentiment that was infused into the adaptation that only has a really kernel. Is. Yeah, I mean, it only has a kernel in the short story, but it pervades and has made the focus almost of the adaptation. And the big change that they made is that the chauffeur is also guilty. So there's the secretary, Daniels, and rather than having an aunt, it's actually a supposedly estranged wife. They divorced rather publicly, but they actually aren't estranged at all. And they used they used that public estrangement to do their dastardly hey, German spying for the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's it's actually becoming a theme going back to Styles. Never trust a two seemingly people. estranged couple. Never trust a man and woman who seem to really, really hate each other. Right. We, could, we could call it like the Agatha Christie middle school rule. If, a, if, a <laughs> if man- you pull somebody's <laughs> pigtails, yeah, if you pull someone's pigtails, you love them. Anyway, there's still Daniels, who's who's guilty, but the chauffeur is also in on it. And the whole idea of Irish people being super anti-British to the point where they would rather help the Germans at the expense of the British is very much alive in, in this 
adaptation in the short story, it's it, it ends up not being the case. So not only do they do that, but of course they set it in 1936, which is also very different. The idea of being pro-German in 1918 versus pro-German in 1936 is of course also very different. So they're essentially implying that the Irish oh. here are helping Hitler. <laughs> For sure. Well, and also, I mean, I, I would just note, because this actually kind of comes up in a weird way in the adaptation, but part of the rise of Sinn Féin was that there was an opposition to Irish troops being enlisted in the Allied and British effort in World War One, And frustration, I guess, about not having essentially home rule, right, and say over say over what your people were being shipped off to. And so that's like set up. I mean, that is an underlying tension also in the prime minister, the approach to the prime minister and the home rule element and the war effort is brought up in the adaptation as like this like seething resentment that has just been boiling up now. They have been planning this for years. It was only when they could get somebody sympathetic to their cause into the position of one of the drivers of the prime minister was the abduction possible. But what is their cause? German rearmament? Indirectly. There is a strong element in Ireland that does not care if Germany rearms so long as it causes hurt for England. But how did Daniels get involved? I understand about his wife. Seems she was always a bit of a rebel. But the father of Commander Daniels was violently opposed to Lord Asquith in the 1914 Irish Home Rule Bill. Oh, that was the end of his career in politics. I think that this has festered inside the Commander Daniels all of his life. He did not take so much persuading. It's really specific in, like, a borderline uncomfortable way. Absolutely. And it climaxes in Daniels's former wife, I guess still the wife of his heart, on a tower, putting a gun to her head, and then bellowing out, Erin, go bra! shooting herself, and we see the blood spattering yeah, onto the tower, which is very, I mean, this is the bloodiest death I've ever seen in this series. Yeah. And um, then falling to her death, and the camera, actually, there's a camera shot that is falling with her to the ground. I'm not exactly sure how they got that. I mean, I think they, they actually hurled a camera at some <laughs> point toward the ground to get that shot. On the top! It's Mrs. Daniels. Let's be honest, there's a really clear anti-Irish sentiment throughout this adaptation that, again, you could argue because it ends up being a red herring in the short story. It's there in the short story, but it's, it's just not of the same tenor and character that well, it is in the adaptation. It, but it's there literally as it's there. It's it, it, much like, again, Witness for the Prosecution, what we were talking about last week, where the mm-hmm. Austria thing is a red herring. In Mm -hmm. The Witness for the Prosecution, the Irish thing is very similar. The man is being set up because he's Irish. He didn't do anything. Right. In 1923, any casual reader of the sketch would probably be thinking, oh, it's that awful Irishman. (laughs) So it's just, it's uncomfortable. From the perspective of 2017, 
it's uncomfortable watching this thing that, that had been made well, in 1990 in the midst of all of this. No, uh, and, also, and also because the bad guys, the bad guys in the original story are Germans. They're, it's about World War One. And They're German in, sympathizers, yeah. Well, I mean, Frau, whatever her name is, is presumably... That's true. Yeah, his aunt is German. So, again, and then he's German if she is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Understandably, they're in the middle of a terrible war with them, so fair enough. And I guess you can argue that there was some civil war elements to the history of Great Britain and Ireland in the 20th century. So, I mean, that's certainly there, and... They had every right in 1990 to feel however they wanted when they were portraying it, but it is a little bit weird that when the plot has to do with essentially Germany and rearmament, the bad guys are the Irish. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think a fitting end to this discussion is to quote the very first sentence of the short story, which I immediately underlined, and that is, now that war and the problems of war are things of the past... And wow, is that an ironic beginning to a story written in 1923. And that's kind of the crux of it. You could tell that she was writing in 1923 on the other side of the Great War and with this brutal, whatever you want to call it, war of Irish independence that had happened, thinking, okay, well, but now we're done with that. And wow, they were just at the beginning of it. And like, I'm fully aware that we're not at the end of anything either. <laughs> I don't feel like I can judge that sentence. It's just like, Do a you know really... what the sentence is a little bit? It's George W. Bush standing on um, mm-hmm. an aircraft carrier announcing yeah. essentially yeah. mission accomplished. Those are some ironic words. And so, I mean, I think that, I think that what we can say about the story is that for a seemingly simple story, it actually causes a lot of problems to discuss it later because the geopolitics of it are so complicated. It's really funny. Well, I mean, not funny, haha, but like funny in an interesting way when it really rears its head in something that you actually generally consider comforting. I generally think of the Poirot series as relatively comforting. I mean, it gets dark, and especially yeah. the later episodes yeah. are very dark, which we've talked about, but it's uh, a little bit jarring to have what feels like really relevant real-world concerns, even if they were, were real-world concerns in 1990. No, absolutely. It feels hard to have them come up. Well, and the funny thing is, with that first sentence of the story, you can tell that the, the, the story is unintentionally political, which is, of course, the most political anything can be. If you're actually trying to make a political statement, sure, you're going to take a stance, but the story ends up being political despite itself because Christie was writing in a certain time about certain things, and as time went on, the biases or just the relationships of what it meant to rearm Germany and for the Irish to not like the English and all those things changed and shifted. And it's just really funny that the exact same thing happened again when it was adapted in 1990, where the choices that were made were based very much on what was going on at the time. And now it's very different looking back on it over 25 years later. And that happens all the time. It just doesn't always happen with mystery stories. <laughs> it doesn't happen as often, I think, with, with detective novels or detective stories. It's usually in other genres. But hey, it, it happens here too because these stories are about people. Right, and they're, and they're written by and they are filmed by people who 
kind of can only respond to their current situation. It's just funny to think about something that, you know, you can remember fondly being a child and sitting like with your mother on a sofa and comfortably watching mystery on PBS and then going back and being like, oh God, this is so this is a political minefield. The best American analogy for that experience I can come up with, which just just came to me when you were saying that, is um, watching this past year, we had two OJ creations. One was the very fictional miniseries done by Ryan Murphy. And then there was right. the OJ Make, Made, Made in America, Made in America yeah. documentary. And watching it, I had been glued to the trial when it was happening, like everyone in the U.S., but I was only a teenager, and I did not understand what the underlying racial, especially racial tensions that were at play there, given the history of not just the U.S. broadly, but Los Angeles specifically, and now having lived in Los Angeles and, and knowing a lot more about that, it was just really interesting to rewatch and or revisit the OJ trial and realize how simplistic my viewing of it had been and the, you know this felt a little bit like that I totally I totally agree and we at least lived in this country during it right all right well I think we're done <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really accidentally weird short story and episode, I think. Yeah, that is The Kidnapped Prime Minister. Join us next week for a novel, The Seven Dials Mystery. In the meantime, you can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash allaboutagatha. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. I am at Kemper Donovan. Catherine is at Brobcat. We are also on Instagram at All About Agatha, and we will see you next week. Bye. See you next week. Bye.